Welcome back to the story of I'm Reagan Snyder, and I'm so glad you're here. Due to the nature of these stories, listener discretion is advised. On July 24, 1984, Alan Lafferty wrapped up his workday in Ogden, Utah as a tile setter, and he started his 70-mile commute back to this small red brick duplex in American Fork, where he lived with his wife Brenda and and their 15-month-old baby Erica. When he walked through the door at around 8 p.m. that night, he called his wife's name and he didn't hear a response. He walked further into their duplex and upon entering the kitchen, he found Brenda's lifeless body lying face down on the kitchen floor in a pool of her own blood. He found baby Erica in her crib in a similar state. She was deceased as well. Alan was raised with his brothers, most notably for the, sta- the sake of the story, Ron and Dan, but they had three more brothers and two sisters. So there were like 10 people in this family, including the parents. They were raised in Payson, Utah, which is a town outside of Salt Lake City, and they were religious. They were raised Mormon, but their dad, Watson Lafferty, was not a nice guy. He was abusive, and he raised his boys with some wild ideas. He raised them to not trust medicine, to not trust the government, and he was just over the top when it came to church. He was very strict. For instance, one of the boys accidentally shot himself in the stomach with an arrow, and because it was Sunday, his dad told him that he would have to deal with it until the morning for breaking the Sabbath as punishment. Of all the brothers, Ron and Dan were closest to each other, but they were also short-tempered and revengeful towards each other. When they grew up, it seems like Ron and Dan took a lot after their dad. Dan thought that he was above the laws of man, so he refused to pay taxes or abide by traffic laws. He was Dan was married to a lady named Matilda, and she had two daughters from a previous marriage, and then Dan and Melinda had one daughter together. And he, like his dad, ran a very strict religious home. One night, Matilda, Dan's wife, walked in to see her 14-year-old daughter sitting on his lap as he fondled her. And knowing he was caught, he, of course, made all sorts of promises that it wouldn't happen again. And he would even keep a pebble in his shoe as a reminder to not think about her sexually. Okay, why do you need a pebble in your shoe for that? Obviously, the pebble didn't work. This 14-year-old girl told her mom that it was happening again, and now Dan was pressuring her for sex. Dan's strict, over-the-top religious ways became even more extreme. He decided that he wanted to practice polygamy, and he wanted to take his 14-year-old stepdaughter as his second wife. He was very obsessed with her. And the church was like, uh, no. And his wife was like, uh, hell no. He was excommunicated from the church. And so Dan did what any red-blooded American man would do. He started a cult together with his five brothers, including his older brother, Ron, and his younger brother, Alan. They started the School of Prophets. 
Ron and Dan decided that they were prophets and polygamy was the foundation of their cult. Obviously, their wives were against this. And so was Brenda, Alan's wife. Brenda was the sister-in-law that the other sisters would go to for advice and counsel and just that kind of thing. She was the college-educated, outspoken one of the bunch. She reminded her sisters-in-law that they had options. They didn't have to be married to these guys. They didn't have to stay married to them if if they're going to be acting crazy like this. Matilda left Dan and Ron's wife, Diana, left him. A year later, Ron received a revelation. He grabbed a pencil and a yellow legal pad and wrote down his revelation, which he then turned into a rap song, which he produced. Just kidding. He didn't do that. But he did write down what he thought was a revelation. And it said, quote, Thus saith the Lord unto my servants, the prophets, It is my will and commandment that ye remove the following individuals in order that my work might go forward, for they truly have become obstacles in my path, and I will not allow my work to be stopped. First, thy brother's wife, Brenda, and her baby, then Chloe Lowe, and then Richard Stowe. And it is my will that they be removed in rapid succession, and that an example be made of them in order that others might see the fate of those who fight against the true saints of God, end quote. Even Alan, who was married to Brenda, believed that his brother was a prophet, and he agreed to this. He didn't tell Brenda about it because he didn't want to worry her. What a thoughtful husband you are, Alan. Great work. Ron and Dan decided that they wanted to go on this long road trip together. So they loaded up their car and headed out for a little while. And when they got back, they grabbed a knife and a sawed-off shotgun and ammunition for it. And they headed over to their brother Alan's duplex where they saw Brenda's car in the driveway. Ron got out of the car. He had a knife hiding in his boot and the shotgun was shoved up his right sleeve. And he headed to the front door where he opened the screen door and he knocked. And he waited and no one answered, so he knocked again. Dan was back in the car watching this, and he was a little bit relieved when Brenda didn't answer the door. Nobody answered the door. He thought that this must be a test from God, kind of like how Abraham was asked to sacrifice his son in the Bible. Ron got back into the car, and they started to head out before they decided that they should just go ahead and try again. Brenda was home. Her car was in the driveway. She was home. She had to be. So they were like, let's just try it again. This time, Dan went up, and he knocked. And this time, Brenda answered. Dan asked where Alan was, and he was at work. So Dan pushed past Brenda into the duplex, and Ron got out of the car. He was watching from the car. Got out of the car and ran in, and he found Dan on top of Brenda, pinning her down onto the floor. Brenda was begging for her life and pleading with them that they don't hurt her baby. Ron started swearing at Brenda and punching her in the face until she was totally unconscious, And then he ran over to cut the cord off of the vacuum. He handed Dan the knife, wrapped the cord around her neck twice, and Dan slit her throat. Dan started walking through the duplex, and he says that the spirit led him to Erica's room. And so he went in there and he took her life because he thought that she would grow up to become like her mom. And that apparently wasn't a good thing. Covered in blood, the brothers left the duplex and they got into their car to go to Chloe Lowe's house. Chloe was the Relief Society president in their ward, 
and she had helped Matilda and Diana through their divorces from Ron and Dan, so they intended to kill her. And when nobody was home, thank goodness, they broke in and they stole a few items and they left and just called it good. And then they just totally scrapped going to Robert Stowe's home altogether because they missed a turn. Robert played a part because he was instrumental in Dan's excommunication, so they planned to kill him too because, you know, it was in the revelation. After Alan had found his wife and daughter deceased, he called police and he went in for questioning. He told the police about what had been happening with his brothers, but he never thought that they would go through with it. Ron and Dan were arrested in Reno, Nevada on August 17th of 1984. They found them standing in in the buffet line. Nothing like a little week-old lobster after a killing spree. Dan was sentenced to life in prison, and Ron was sentenced to death by firing squad. And that was supposed to take place in 2020, but he died of natural causes the year before, in 2019, at 78 years old. Once upon a time, there was a guy named Joseph DeMombro, who was raised Catholic, but got to the occult in his 20s. He established the Golden Way Foundation, which would allow occult enthusiasts to connect with each other, like Facebook, but worse. This is where he met Luc Jure, who had given up studying medicine for spiritual, spiritualism and homeopathy. And together in Switzerland in 1984, these fellas came up with their very own cult, the Order of the Solar Temple. The 1980s were just a season of cult making, weren't they? and baby-making. I'm an 80s baby. Their beliefs and practices were a combination of things that they had learned and experienced through other cults that they'd been a part of, and this here cult combined evangelical Christian doctrine with occult Freemasonry, and their main goal was to recruit the 14th century Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn and the Templar. The Golden Dawn was a secret society founded by three Freemasons that studied and practiced the occult, metaphysics, and paranormal activities. What a mashup. And then the Templar was a Catholic military order. Members of the Order of the Solar Temple like that particular social structure because they believe that it will bring harmony and control to our crazy world. They also believe that when the world ends... They will be transported to a planet that orbits the star Sirius, where they will live in the afterlife. The end of the world will mark the second coming of Jesus, who they know as the Solar God King. The leaders of the Order of the Solar Temple led, led very, very lavish lifestyles. Where did they get their money, you ask? Well, I will tell you... In order to be granted this very special privilege of living on a planet orbiting Sirius, you had to be a devout fee-paying member. In the 90s, members started noticing that Luke was becoming erratic and overly sexual. He would initiate sexual encounters with women of the cult, claiming that it would provide them with strength to perform ceremonies. Luke thinks very highly of himself, apparently. Both the founders would break up marriages by claiming that they weren't cosmically compatible with their spouse. And then on the side, they'd just secretly be hooking up with the new, newly single wives. That's just so messed up. So gross. Crap really started to hit the fan when Joseph's son found evidence of spiritual visions 
being fake. As in they were using projectors. Oops. So he became real skeptical and he started spreading news that the cult was fake. His own son. This got some of the members questioning things and they started digging for more answers. A lot of them left because they made the connection that the founders were living this very lavish lifestyle because of these member fees. How else? And Joseph was mad. He knew that if he didn't do something, he was going to lose followers and his Richie boy lifestyle would be down the drain. And here's where it starts to get even more crazy. Joseph believed and taught his followers that the birth of a godchild would signify the end of the world. Well, that title wasn't up for grabs because one of his own kids had it already. His daughter, Emmanuel, was the cosmic child. So when he found out that a couple named Antonio and Nikki Tatoy had named their son Emmanuel, he was enraged. This baby was obviously the Antichrist, and the cult members stabbed the entire family to death with a wooden stake. The Dutoys were also allegedly trying to, ri- to rise in status, too, because they were fabricating their own visions, so they just needed to be done away with. The poor Dutoys. The apocalypse was just around the corner, and Joseph and Luke told their members that they needed to transport themselves onto the star planet and get a head start. Their stat. We do not want to be here for the apocalypse. Within 12 hours of murdering this poor Dutoy family, Joseph put together a recreation of the Last Supper, and he, of course, played Jesus, and the rest of the members wore these ritualistic robes, and when officials were called to a lodge on fire, they found the members. It was their place that they're in. They were all deceased and laying on the floor, forming a sun-shaped pattern. There were 22 of them, and 19 of them had either been shot in the head, and some of Those people were wrapped in plastic bags with hoods. Within hours of this, there was another farmhouse that was reported to be on fire, and this house belonged to the order, to this particular cult, and inside there were 25 people, including Joseph's children, who were all dead from drug overdoses. All 25 people were dead from drug overdoses. A year later, there was a third mass suicide, There were 16 people, all arranged on the floor like the sun again, and they were all wearing plastic bags over their heads, drugged, and shot. Another year and a half went by, and when firefighters responded to a report of a fire, they found a few kids hiding behind a shack that was on the property. These kids told the firefighters that their parents had drugged them and wanted them to commit suicide alongside them, but somehow, thankfully, they were able to escape. The death toll within this cult at this time was 74. It's been called a mass suicide, but it seems like there's been a lot of murders. Officials had found both new and old bruises on some of the corpses, which indicated that there was violence prior to the death. And sadly, this cult still exists. I don't think there's been any deaths since then, so let's just hope and pray that that doesn't happen again. Saul Newton was born June 25th, 1906 in St. John, New Brunswick, and he went to the University of Wisconsin, and then he moved to Chicago. He served in both the Spanish Civil War and in World War II. After the war, he started to study psychotherapy, 
and he worked at the William Ellenson White Institute, where he met Dr. Jane Pierce. They ended up getting married, and they continued to work at the Institute until one of its founders and their mentors, Harry Stack Sullivan, passed away. In 1957, Saul and Jane founded the Sullivan Institute for Research in Psychoanalysis in New York, which was named after Harry Sullivan. Their goal was to get away from the traditional family unit because they believed that traditional family ties were the root cause for mental illness and social anxiety. Sullivanians were to sever ties with their families except for when they needed money. They were to beg for money from their families and that was about it. And they were forced to live a non-monogamous lifestyle. Several hundred people had joined the group within the decade and they were living in three buildings Two of those were owned, one was rented, and they were all in the Upper West Side of New York City. And monogamy was just, it was strictly prohibited. So married couples were not allowed to live together. The men and women lived in gender-assigned buildings. Therapists who were friends with Saul would refer their patients to the group. They, I guess, believed in them. Maybe they didn't know what was going on. There was a Harvard graduate named Paul Spreacher, who joined, not obviously not knowing that it was a cult, he thought that he was very fortunate to have come across them and described living with them was like living in a tiny village that was cut off from the world for the most part. So these like-minded individuals would just all hang out and they had mandated therapy sessions, but everyone was required to sleep around with each other, including the therapists. So that professional and personal boundary was completely blurry and crossed and really it just didn't exist. These therapy sessions would brainwash people into thinking that their moms were these evil people who didn't love them. They blamed mothers for all mental trauma. One ex-member remembers a therapist telling him to look at old pictures of him and his mom And the therapist that he was working with convinced him that based on these pictures, his mom had nothing but disdain for everyone in the pictures. And her resentment directly affected the way that he functioned in the world. And that's what brought him to the cult, ultimately, to get help. Any babies who were born into this cult were quickly taken away from its parents. And they would be watched over by a caretaker. And then when they came of age, when they were old enough, they were sent to boarding school. Parents would get to see their kids maybe one or two hours a day. Members were given instructions as to which jobs they should take to bring in money for the cult. And there were fines for weird offenses within the cult. Like, if someone showed too much interest in their own children, they would be fined $10,000. Some parents, if not all of these parents, were mad that they were hardly seeing their kids. If one parent left the cult, the one who remained would retain full custody, and that led to a bunch of problems. There were a bunch of different custody lawsuits going on, and this is about the time that the cult started to get negative attention. Saul divorced Jane, and he began to see an actress named Joan Harvey, who was a soap star, and she would go on to become his fifth wife. And things shifted in the cult when they got married and she kind of became his right-hand woman. Joan was the mastermind behind The Fourth Wall, a theater collective. They had signed a lease on the theater, which was 
at the time occupied by a gay review called the Hot Rock Hotel. The Sullivanians were ordered to invade the building and destroy Hot Rock Hotel's sets. And in their quest to do so, they injured several people. With this theater, cult members were required to report to the theater immediately after a long day of work to rehearse for plays that the group would put on to lure new members in. In 1979, there was an incident in Pennsylvania where a a nuclear generating station had a partial meltdown, and Saul freaked out at this. He was sure that Manhattan was going to be destroyed by this. So they all went to Orlando, Florida, for a few weeks. But there were some members who didn't go. And when the group came back, Saul kicked him out of the group over that. And apparently this group was not easy to be neighbors with. They allegedly got into all sorts of disagreements with their neighbors. In 1985, the Sullivanians believed that residents at a nearby building had poured paint onto their buildings, and so they retaliated by beating the neighbors with blunt objects and smashing their stuff. Saul and Joan kept collecting property to expand the group, and their paranoia became extra apparent when they had a fallout shelter type room built where Joan could edit edit her controversial movies because she was certain that the CIA and the FBI were after her. They also had these crazy escape plans all planned out that involved big buses and motorcycles for those carrying children in knapsacks. The cult ended up fizzling out after Saul died in 1991 at 85 years old. In November of 1988, Gabrielle Lavalle had a toothache. When she complained about it, the leader of her group she was a part of responded by grabbing a pair of pliers, ordering her to lie down, and pulling out eight of her teeth. Later that night, he chased her with a knife until he overcame her and cut the tendon in one of her hands. This girl was the victim of a ton of harsh, horrible, please kill me instead type abuse. She suffered from welding torch burns to her genitals, a hypodermic needle was broken off in her back, and after the leader had cut parts off of her breast and smashed her in the head with the side of an axe, she got away somehow. But for reasons unknown to any of us, she decided to come back. When she did, she was punished by having one of her fingers cut off with wire cutters, and then he pinned her hand down to a wooden table and using, using a hunting knife. And then he cut her arm off with like a machete or a butcher's knife or something. He cut her arm off. That's what matters here. She was left on the kitchen floor until the next morning. And that's when the stump of her arm was stitched up with a thread and needle. This is the story of the Ant Hill Kids. And it is a nasty one. Roque Thoreau was born in 1947 to his mom and allegedly abusive dad, and when he was 13, he dropped out of school and began to obsess over the apocalypse and the Old Testament with a special interest in masculine authority. It's not good. It's not a good combo. He had been raised in Catholicism, but he would go on to become a Seventh-day Adventist. Adventist. He was kicked out of the church, though, after attempting to gain leadership, but by this time, he already had some followers. 
By the mid-70s, he believed that he was the savior of the world, and he forced his followers to leave their lives, their homes, their jobs, their families, to become part of this new free-thinking commune. They were all required to wear matching tunics to represent their equality and devotion to the cult. (laughs) It's ironic that they're supposed to be free-thinking, but they're required to wear matching outfits. Thoreau believed that the end of the world would be in February of 1979. So to prepare, he and his followers moved to what they called Eternal Mountain and built a commune out of tents and log cabins. And then February of 1979 came and went and nothing happened, not even the apocalypse. And so his followers just began to question him. He told them, that God and Earth's timeline is not parallel, so he just miscalculated it was all. Here is around the time that the cult took a sharp turn for the super weird and super messed up. Thoreau quote-unquote married all of the females in his group and got all of them pregnant. He had 20 kids with nine different women. And I don't know if this was his own child or not, but there's a sweet little two-year-old boy named Samuel who was having trouble peeing. And Thoreau decided that he was a surgeon and he could fix it. So he tried to fix the issue with surgery, but when this poor baby didn't stop crying, Thoreau ordered one of his followers, this guy named Guy Veer, to beat Samuel. And Those, that beating led to lots of injuries, which resulted in Samuel's death. And so as punishment, Thoreau castrated Guy, who he had instructed to beat this poor baby. To hide the death, Samuel's body was set on fire and Thoreau ordered, I don't even know if I'm saying his last name right. It's going to be really embarrassing if I'm not. Thoreau ordered his followers to say that he had been trampled by a horse if questioned. That makes sense. Yeah, trampled by horses. That's why his body's burned. The commune was raided by police and they discovered Samuel's burned body. And so Thoreau and eight other members were arrested and charged with criminal negligence. Not sure how long they were in prison for, but after their release, they moved their commune to Ontario near Burnt River. And they supported themselves by selling things that they made, like bread, like bake cell type things, maple syrup, preserves. And Thoreau's followers built the community while he sat back on his hiney and watched them. And he compared them to ants working on an anthill. And so that's where the the name Anthill Kids was born. So cute. Thoreau started to drink a lot, which made him violent. I feel like that's tale as old as time in these stories. And it wasn't just like a little bit violent, it was wildly violent. Even more than he already was. He was he was disgusting. He started to get paranoid that his followers would leave, and so he forbid them to talk to each other if he wasn't there. They had to get his permission if they wanted to go sleep with each other, and he hit them all. First he would hit them with belts, but then he shifted to using hammers and the flat side of an axe. That seemed to be his favorite. He would force them to fight each other in a dirt ring, and he called them, they were called gladiator tournaments. So, live entertainment, I guess. The abuse was really, really bad if he thought that a member wanted to leave the cult. I mean, all abuse is bad, but they, he just had very specific abuse. 
He would suspend these people from the ceiling and pluck their body hair, or he would defecate on them. And to prove loyalty, he would ask one member to cut another member's toes off with wire cutters, another favorite of his apparently, and he would force them to sit on lit stove, break their own legs with sledgehammers. I'm having thoughts of misery. Oh, the movie Misery with Kathy Bates. Uh, They would have to shoot other members in the shoulders, and he forced them to eat dead mice and feces. So, you know, it sounds like a really fun, great place to be. And then the cult's children, who never even asked to be there, they were just brought there or born there, were sexually abused. They were held over fires. They were nailed up onto trees while other children threw rocks at them. It was really gross. During one of Thoreau's freakouts, one of his wives put her newborn baby outside to keep him away, or her, I think it was a girl, to keep her away from his violence, just from his meltdown temper tantrum. And it was freezing outside, and the baby died because it was so cold. So this led to an investigation, and 14 children, hopefully that was all of them, were removed from the commune and put into foster care. Then in 1989, a follower named Solange Bolliard complained of an upset stomach. I don't know why they're complaining because they know what the psycho is going to do to them. He took it upon himself, Thoreau, took it upon himself to perform surgery on her without anesthesia. And he laid her down on a table naked. Apparently, you know, she had to be naked for this. And he punched her in the stomach, you know, as a surgeon does. And then he shoved a tube up her butt and pumped olive oil and molasses into her to act as an enema. He cut her stomach open with a knife and he ripped parts of her intestines out with his bare hands. What was he trying to accomplish here? Truly, this reminds me of Dr. Death. I did an episode on Dr. Death. This is what it reminds me of. Then when he was all done doing whatever he was trying to accomplish, he made Gabrielle, the girl from the beginning of the story, stitch her up with a needle and thread because, you know, ew, gross, that's for peasants. I can't be bothered to do that part. You would think and hope that Solange was dead through all of this, or at least not conscious, but she was alive. This poor girl. And then, as if that wasn't enough, he had the other woman shove a tube down her throat and blow into it. Why? I don't know. I don't know why about any of this. She did die, but not until the next day. So that was a very slow, agonizing death for this poor girl. And what they did with her skull to try to resurrect her has the potential to ruin your whole entire life. So I'm going to leave that part out. If you're really curious, you can look it up on Google, Wikipedia, whatever you want, but I recommend that you don't. (laughs) I wish I could just get it out of my head. Gabrielle escaped once, remember, and came back. Well, she was able to escape the cult again. She hitchhiked her way to a hospital, and this time she went to authorities and told them everything. So in 1989, that same year, Thoreau was arrested for assault, and that was the end of the anthill kids. I'm sure authorities were relieved because they'd had suspicions about the group just based on their primitive living situation. But since the group was registered as a church, they weren't able to investigate the adults. All they could really do was just try to ensure the welfare of the kids in the commune. Thoreau was sentenced to 12 years in prison for the amputation of Gabrielle's arm, 
And while he was there, most of his followers had abandoned him, except for a couple female followers who he had four more kids with through conjugal visits. My gosh, what are people trying to accomplish? Once his abuse and murder was found out, he was sentenced to life in prison. And in 2000, he was transferred to Georgester Penitentiary, which is a medium strength, (laughs) medium strength, which is a medium security prison. And then in 2002, he applied for parole and that was denied and he never applied again. So yeah, that's right. You psycho, do your time. There's a website called murderauction.com, still functioning, and it sells true crime documents. (laughs) So if you're interested, if you are that interested in true crime, you can go and buy a serial killer's birth certificate or something off this site. Anyway, in 2009, Thoreau tried to sell his artwork on it, but he wasn't allowed to send his work out of prison. I bet they were beautiful. I just see in my head like a a drawing of a butterfly with some crayons that looks like a three-year-old did it. On February 26, 2011, when Thoreau was 63 years old, he was killed by his 60-year-old cellmate, Matthew Gerard McDonald. He was also in for murder, and after he killed Thoreau, he didn't even try to hide it. He stabbed him right in the neck with a shiv, and then he headed on over to the guard station, and he handed them the shiv, and he said, quote, that piece of is down on the range. Here's the knife. I sliced him up, end quote. <laughs> First of all, what even? But also, thank, thank you for your service, Matthew. <laughs> I don't know. All I honestly... I just never want to ever read or hear about a cult again after all of these. There are so many out there. I had to cut myself off because they are just really, really gross and really heavy and really weird. And I I don't know. It just makes you realize how crazy this world is and how crazy some people are and... I'm just going to keep my thoughts to myself. I just never want to ever read about another cult again. I used to be really interested in this subject. This has kind of tapped me out. I'm done. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If I talk about another cult, it will be somewhere way down the line. Let me know if you want to hear about more cults. If there's one in particular you want me to talk about and cover, I, you might have to, you might have to bribe me. I'll take a dollar and some hubba bubba. Anyway, thank you for listening. If you want to reach out to me, please do so on Instagram at Reagan Tells Stories. I'm also on TikTok and that's about it. You can email me too. It's um, storiesbyreagansnyder at gmail.com and I'll see you next week. Bye.